Well, good morning, church. Um, I feel like I need to introduce myself. My name is Todd Brown. Uh, I've been here for, at this church for a long time, so uh, it's good to see you. Uh, listen, before we get started, it seems appropriate to me. Um, we just kind of mark and celebrate that um, Alan and Carrie Ann have been with us almost eight months now, a little over eight months. And you know what that means. The honeymoon's over, bud. You better step it up and it's uh, uh, knives out, claws out. Now, we're, we're not playing now. No, the truth is, Alan and Kirian have been such a blessing to us. Um, yeah, and it's just been remarkable. Uh, I'm telling you, it, it, it's right. Love your preaching, love your heart for us, love your heart that you've already demonstrated for this city. Um, and for us as your people, it feels like you've been here a long time. And uh, that's not to say that eight months it just feels like forever, but um, <laughs> you know what I mean. Thank you. So this morning, on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, Hundreds of people have gathered. They're standing in line. In fact, they're, they're wrapped around the block to get a table in a little diner that's been there since 1954. It's called Veselka. Jason Burchard owns it after his father before him and his father before him. The diner sits in the middle of a neighborhood that they call Little Ukraine. At one time, when thousands fled communist oppression, it held the highest, that neighborhood held the highest concentration of Ukrainians in the United States. Today, as they have every day, since a brutal dictator ruthlessly attacked their homeland and their people, they will flock to that little restaurant to remember and reconnect with home. They'll eat borscht and pierogies. They'll listen to music in a language that they have either forgotten and many of them have never spoken. Wear, they'll wear traditional Ukrainian clothes or t-shirts with blue and yellow flags. They're gathering there this morning because they've remembered that though they live in America, in, in ways that they might not ever be able to articulate, Ukraine is still home. When I saw that story last week, it reminded me again that it's possible to live in one place and love it, but still be loyal to home. It seems to me that in the last few years, the church of Jesus Christ might have forgotten that. I'm going to ask you to be patient with me this morning. I have thought and prayed a lot about this message. I'm sure about two things. First, it's a word that we need to hear. It's a word I need to hear. And second, I'm pretty sure I'm going to hurt some feelings this morning. I'm trying to be careful. I don't want to be reckless or unkind. 
And we're going to talk a little bit about politics today. In my recent experiences, that conversation is often challenging. But we're going to be, think about what it means to be Christian citizens of the United States of America. Our text this morning is from Philippians 3. And we need to make a couple of notes about it before we dive in. Paul wrote this short letter to the church in Philippi when he was imprisoned in Rome. Now listen, as much as any one of his letters, this one lets us see that he loves that little church. They had quite a history together. You probably remember that Paul and his, his ministry partner Silas had come through Philippi when they're working their way through Asia Minor, preaching the gospel and planting churches. And when they got to Philippi, their preaching, and specifically a healing that they did, really got the city stirred up. So the local authorities arrested them, had them publicly flawed, and then threw them into prison. I'm going to read you the story from Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 25. It's just one of the greatest. It's just this, listen to what, this is the beginning of this little church in their relationship with Paul. Think about this. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and all at once, all the prison doors flew open, and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. So in these days, if you're the jailer and someone got out, it meant you had to pay with your life for that. So he's drawn his sword, and he's about to kill himself, and Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. And at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them, and he was filled with joy because he'd come to believe in God, he and his whole family. Pay attention here. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial Listen, underline, even though we are Roman citizens. And then they threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers repeated this to the magistrates. And when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came in to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and encouraged them, then they left. 
Here's what's interesting about Philippi. It's historically well known as a Roman colony, right? Philippians were extremely proud of their connection to Rome. It goes all the way back to their founding history. They wanted to look like and talk like and be like and live like Romans. Because they were an official outpost of Rome, they were Roman citizens. Now, most of the people who lived in the Roman Empire at that time were Roman subjects. The Philippians were Roman citizens. That's why they reacted the way they did when Paul told them he was a Roman citizen. It wasn't just an interesting bit of trivia about Paul. It was a big, big deal in Philippi, and it granted privileges and freedoms and rights that non-citizens of Rome didn't get. They didn't participate in them. Listen, one of the reasons, if you've traveled the, across the world, one of the reasons that we have American embassies in almost every country in the world is to ensure that American citizens are treated well. When I flash my passport in Brazil or South Africa or France, one of the things that it says is that I'm a citizen of the most powerful nation in the world. And if you mess with me, if you're unfair to me, you're going to have to deal with the full weight and power of the United States of America. And in most places in the world, that means something. It really does. That's how Philippians thought about their Roman citizenship. It meant something. The problem is that it wasn't just a one-way street. Being a Roman citizen conferred benefits, but it came with some very specific expectations. Those privileges and freedoms and rights came with the expectation of loyalty to Caesar. In fact, one of the things that citizens said, if they did their version of the Pledge of Allegiance, it would be Caesar is Lord. They were expected to affirm and support and declare that Caesar is in fact Lord. And you should know this. This little church loved Paul. And Paul loved them. And one of the things that they shared in common was their Roman citizenship. You got it? Now let's read Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 27. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, who's he talking about here? He's talking about believers who've lost their way, who've forgotten what their first loyalty is, who've forgotten who they follow and what they've committed to. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. Listen. But our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. 
And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, that's how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Paul just dropped a bomb on them. He's really trying to encourage a little church that's having a rough go of it. You can't read this letter and not feel the affection and the kinship that he feels for them. They've been his supporters. They've been his encouragers. They're partners with him in the gospel in ways that very few other churches or believers were. But make no mistake about it. Paul just dropped a bomb on them. Our citizenship is in heaven, he says. Now that has some serious implications for our context. The first may seem obvious, but it has to be the place to start, and it's this. The kingdom of God and any institution or government are not the same thing. The kingdom of God and any institution or government or club or group is not the same thing. When Paul says that we're citizens of heaven, he's making a distinction and a separation from the Roman Empire. They aren't the same thing. Now, that's not a problem for us when we're talking about Rome or Russia, right? That's easy. If I said to you that loyalty to God and loyalty to Vladimir Putin were two different things, you'd go, yeah. But it gets a little trickier. If I tell you that loyalty to Jesus and loyalty to the United States are not the same thing. They're just not. I'm not the first to observe that there's a history of thought that considers loyalty to God and loyalty to America to be equal. And it's dangerous when that happens. It's destructive when that happens. This is true not just about governments or nations. It's dangerous to equate the kingdom of God with any institution or government or school or political party or ministry or church. They're not the same thing. When I get them mixed up or confused, I'm wide open to beliefs and behaviors that are in direct conflict with the spirit of God and the way of Jesus. I gotta tell you that one of the most disturbing things about the violence and the destruction and the language at the Capitol last January 6th was how much Christian symbolism and Christian language was used in its service. It's not okay to scream vile language and hold up a flag with a cross on it. You can't do that. They're not the same thing. Christians and non-Christians around the world watch that scene with absolute confusion. How can you scream like that and at the same time carry a flag with the name of Jesus on? That doesn't work. 
The point that Paul is making is about primary loyalty. Those of us who have declared that Jesus is Lord are also declaring that no one and nothing else is. As a follower of Jesus Christ, I can be a loyal member of almost any community or group. I really can. I want you to hear that. I can be loyal to something that isn't the kingdom until, until, until there's a conflict. Until there's conflict with the priorities of the kingdom of God, until the goals and the attitudes and the actions of my group are in opposition to the goals and attitudes and actions of the kingdom. At that point, the choice is clear. It's not even close. Jesus wins that call. Right? For those of us who who have staked our life, our future, our eternity on the Lord Jesus Christ, if, 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 following him comes into conflict with my engagement or association or participation in any other group. That choice is pretty clear. Jesus was a loyal member of his community. He was a model citizen. He was one of the finest people in that, in that world. But in John chapter 2, John says that Jesus didn't entrust himself to them because he knew what was in their hearts. In other words, while he was with them and they were his people, he reserved his deepest loyalties to God. His primary loyalty was not to his family. It wasn't to his, his community. It wasn't to the government at that time. It, 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 was, it was to God. And, and when they weren't in conflict, he was fine. But when they were in conflict, there was no question where his primary loyalty lay. So how do I live as a Christian citizen of the United States of America? Right, once I get my priorities right and my loyalties in their proper order, how do I live? Two things, and we'll be finished. First is this. Christian citizenship demands attentive, deep, thoughtful, spirit-led discernment. Christian citizenship demands deep, thoughtful, attentive, spirit-led discernment. Once we acknowledge that the systems and kingdoms and institutions of this world are sometimes going to be in opposition to the kingdom of God, the next question for me is when and where and how is that true? Where is the conflict? 1 John 4 says, don't believe everything. Test the spirit of something. Hold on to what's good because there's a lot of faults in the world, John says. There's a lot of faults in the world. The most helpful thing for me is to know the story and the person of Jesus so well that I can hold on to him as my filter for the world. When a leader says or does something that doesn't line up with the words and the way of Jesus, my alarm should go off and so should yours. Right? If, my, if I'm trying to be discerning, if I'm trying to be spirit-led and attentive and thoughtful, if something is out of sync with the way and the words of Jesus, that ought to make me sit up and pay attention and back up a step. I'll give you an example. When I watched the confirmation hearings this last week, my sensors went off. 
There was a kind of disrespect and rudeness in the way that some of the committee treated Judge Jackson. The problem for me is that the worst offenders in this instance were guys from my team. Now, I'm not a constitutional law expert. I have no idea if she would be a good Supreme Court justice. I don't know. But if I hold up the lens of Jesus to that display, it doesn't work. You may say, well, well, the other side did it worse. Well, that's like your mama taught you better than that. Right? Your mama taught you better than that. When it, when it doesn't line up with the way of Jesus, then I ought to back up and go, hey, that's not, I can't support that. I can't support that behavior. The good news is that because of my primary loyalty to Jesus, I don't have to approve or condone or agree with any of it. As a kingdom citizen first, I have more freedom and independence than any government can give me. I really do. I'm not beholden. Jesus wasn't beholden to anybody because he had his loyalty first. His primary loyalty was to God. Alvin C. York was a member of the Church of Christ of Christian Union. In his mid-twenties, he had a powerful conversion experience. It changed his life. He grew up in Tennessee and he met these members of the church and eventually met the girl who would become his wife and she convinced him that following Jesus was better than the, than the life he was living in and it really radically changed his life. And like many, if not almost all, of the members of the Church of Christ in that time, that meant that he became a pacifist, a nonviolent, committed to nonviolence. Later, in his life, he would say about the outbreak break of World War I, I was worried clean through. I didn't want to go and kill. I believed in my Bible. When he was drafted, his application for conscientious objector status was denied. And he wrestled deeply, deeply with it. He ended up with two friends in the army who shared his commitment, deep, deep commitment to Jesus. And after a couple of weeks of very um, intense conversation and study and thought and talk and wrestling, eventually he decided that he could fight for a just cause. So one day, Alvin C. Sergeant York was ordered to take out a machine gun position. And by the end of the day, he had single-handedly taken out 37 different machine gun nests and led 130 prisoners by himself back to camp. It was one of the bravest things anybody had ever heard of or seen. He was the most decorated um, hero in World War I. He, he came home an American hero. In fact, Gary Cooper won an Academy Award playing Sergeant York in the movie by the same name about his life. If you've never seen it, it there's a scene where Captain York, or Sergeant York is sitting on the mountain before he goes back to his army unit. 
and just praying and talking to God saying, what should I do? I'm not here to celebrate his courage or, or the fact that he fought for his country. I'm here to celebrate his struggle to understand how his faith and his commitment to Jesus matched up with his loyalty to his country. And the reason it was a struggle is because he knew it wasn't the same thing. And if his faith couldn't allow him to participate, that was the answer. He didn't assume that they were one and the same. More importantly, he knew that if there was a disagreement between the two, his loyalty to Jesus was primary. He wrestled deeply to discern. That's the first duty of a Christian citizen. And many Christian Americans have forgotten that duty to discern. We're called to view everything through the life and the work and the words and the way of Jesus. And the second and final implication for a Christian citizen comes from the advice that God gave to Jeremiah. He said, Jeremiah, I want you to tell the Jews who are living as exiles in Babylon, I want you to tell them something. So these people had been captured in their homeland and had been sent off a thousand miles away into what's now modern day Iraq. And they're stuck in Babylon and they want to go home. And, and the question is, what do we do while we're here? Right? This is, this is not home, but what do we do while we're here? And God said, Jeremiah, here's what I want you to tell them. Jeremiah 29, verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, don't decrease. Listen. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it's prospers, you too will prosper. Here's what God told Jeremiah, how to live as a citizen when, when, when you're in some place that's not home. It's not your final home. It's not your real home. It's not your true home. It's just where you live. You know what he says? Seek the peace and prosperity of the place you live. Christian citizens should be the finest, greatest citizens of any nation. We're invited to engage. We're invited to participate. We're invited to be part of the process, to be part of the community, to be part of the world that we live in. We're invited to bless and to pray for the place that we live. We're called to have an attitude of generosity and support for our political leaders. Paul even goes so far in Romans 13 as to command the church to pray for Nero, who is legendary. There, the, the, the list of bad guys in history, he's like top 10. You've never had a president as bad as Nero. 
And Paul says, pray for him. It's a tough one, but it reveals how we can live in the world and still maintain our primary loyalty. I find it fascinating that Jesus doesn't say much about politics or government except to announce that neither had any power over him. When he's standing in front of Pilate, Pilate says, are you the king? He says, well, yeah. And if I wanted to, <laughs> you wouldn't be standing here anymore. Paul doesn't either. Listen, there was a lot to talk about politically and governmentally if they had wanted to. There was a lot to talk about. But they didn't. Their message was something like this. Don't worry too much about Rome. Love your neighbor. Right? Don't worry too much about Rome. Love your neighbor. God will take care of Rome and Germany and Russia and Brazil and the United States of America and England. You take care of the people in your life group. That's what I want you to do. I want you to, I want you to take care mostly of the people in your life group. Love each other. Care for each other. Make sure nobody goes hungry. Make sure nobody, nobody gets caught without a without a safety net. You try to love and bless and support your city and your neighbors. You love your enemies and you teach your kids to follow me. You live a life of peace and joy and hope. Be loyal first to God and then be good to whoever, whenever, wherever you can. And don't be afraid. Don't be, church, don't be afraid. Do not be afraid. Jesus says, I've overcome the world. And it's going to be okay. <laughs> Don't be afraid. I'm going to fix it. I want to be absolutely clear this morning. I love this country. I really do. I'm so grateful for my home. My earthly home. I love what we value, even if sometimes we don't always live up to it. I love our commitments to justice and freedom and equality. I wouldn't want to be from or live anywhere else. But this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Lord, you know I've got no friend like you. If heaven's not my home, then Lord, what will I do? My treasure and my hope are not dependent on any government or president or party or club or group. My future is utterly dependent on the power of the resurrected Jesus Christ. He alone is Lord. Someday. You're not going to get to vote anymore. Someday. You won't have representation in any Congress that you can see. 
someday. You're going to live in a world of complete justice and equity and fairness and joy and peace. And it will be ruled by a king. And that's going to be a good day. That's going to be a really, really good day. Let's stand for prayer. Can I just say thank you for your patience this morning? I really, really appreciate what felt like attentiveness and um, thoughtfulness. You know I love you, right? I really do. Let's pray. God, we pray today that you would continue to remind us through the Holy Spirit of the centrality in our hearts of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We declare by faith, if not by sight, that Jesus is Lord and there is no other. I want to say I'm grateful, God, for the blessings that you have poured out on me personally and us as a group but because of the place where we live. I'm grateful for the freedoms and for the ability to participate. And God, I pray that you will help all of us. That you'll help all of us to put in its rightful place, the Lordship of Jesus Christ, that you would remind us again that our citizenship is with you. And that gives us unbelievable freedom and peace. I pray, God, that you would dispel any spirit of fear among your people. That we would walk with confidence and hope and peace. Knowing that the things we see now someday will not be. And that everything we long for someday will. And to that end and for that day, we say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.